This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Matt Johnson, a professor at Humboldt State University in Northern California. Based in the university's Department of Wildlife, Johnson is overseeing an extended research study by Humboldt graduate students to gauge the effectiveness of using owls versus rodenticides to control and remove rodents from nearby Napa Valley vineyards. Gophers, mice, and other rodents are said to represent a longtime scourge of these vineyards. A central element of this research involves the students having placed approximately three 300 owl nest boxes across an array of the Napa vineyards in a random distribution. From there, the students are noting and recording the effects of the owls, reducing or removing the rodent pests as compared with using rodenticides. The objective, of course, is mitigating the rodent problem in these vineyards without relying on chemicals. Rodenticides can kill birds as well as other animals that eat the rodents who've been poisoned by the rodenticide. And even for the animals that are the intended victims, these pesticides can yield horrific deaths marked by internal bleeding and considerable suffering. We'll discuss this research study and some of the findings and implications when I speak with Dr. Matt Johnson in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Stacey LeBaron, the host of the Community Cats podcast, in which she interviews experts related in various ways to issues associated with community cats, also known, of course, as feral cats. LeBaron and the Community Cats podcast also serve as the host of the fifth annual online cat conference happening this weekend, January 28th through 30th. We'll hear from LeBaron about some of the speakers and panels that will be presented a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss the research exploring substituting owls for rodenticides in Napa Valley Vineyards with Dr. Johnson. With the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Matt Johnson on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Dr. Johnson. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm, I'm really well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really a great privilege. Oh, cool. Well, let's start uh, by asking you to talk a little bit about Humboldt State University. As a California native, I have a, a sense of the school, but many uh, folks listening may not. Yeah, well, Humboldt State University is part of the California State University system, um, so a 20-some campus system within the state of California. And so we're, um, Humboldt State is known in particular for the natural resource sciences, the wildlife and fisheries and forestry and environmental sciences, but we're a, um, you know, a, a broad-reaching um, university with lots of different disciplines. Um, and so we've got graduate students and undergraduate students, and we take uh, a real serious approach to integrating research and hands-on experience with students. So I've got master's students and undergraduate students working on this project. That's great. And what drew you yourself to Humboldt State as an institution to conduct research and and obviously to teach as well? Well, yeah, my discipline and my passion is wildlife biology, and Humboldt State's got a great reputation for doing uh, work with students uh, at the nexus of wildlife conservation um, and, and, you know, society. So that was really what drew me to Humboldt State, and I've been here for about 20 years. I love it. 
Wow. I guess it's starting to work out. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so not counting the research with the owls that we'll obviously delve into uh, in, in some detail in, in a moment. But can you give me a bit of an overview of your uh, other research over the years, key areas where you've concentrated your uh, efforts? Yeah, I, I can, Duncan. So I'm really interested in what we call habitat ecology. So, you know, why animals are where they are. Um, and in particular, I've done a lot of my work with birds. Um, a variety of species. I've worked on other um, classes of animals too, mammals and, and even some reptile work, but um, I've done a lot of work with birds. Um, and over the years, I've really come to recognize that agricultural habitats are profoundly important for the conservation of birds and other wildlife. You know, there's a lot of attention paid to nature reserves and um, wildlife refuges and those types of things. And those are, of course, vital. But, um, you know, something like a third of the Earth's ice-free terrestrial land surface is devoted to agriculture. So if we're going to save biodiversity, we've got to figure out how we can grow food for um, a, a growing human population and conserve wildlife in those same spaces. So I've done a lot of research over the years with birds in agriculture. I've worked in the tropics for quite a bit. Mm. I've worked on birds in coffee farms. Um, just wrapping up a project recently um, with some students. I'm working on coffee farms and birds in Kenya. Oh, wow. um, and then that brought, you know, and that interest um, brought me to look more locally um, for opportunities to think about integrating wildlife conservation and, and agriculture. And that's really what piqued the interest with the first few students on this project with uh, barn owls in wine grape vineyards. Cool. I definitely want to jump into that in one sec. But I'm just curious, based on what you've just kind of outlined about your own interests and research and your 20 years there, this might be as good a time as any is for me to learn a little bit more about the Department of Wildlife there. Can you just yeah. talk a little bit about just some basic elements maybe of the curriculum and and what sort of wildlife is typically being studied? If there, if there is a typical wildlife, sounds like it might be pretty broad, but uh, just give us a little yeah, bit of a sense. Broad. What I like to tell people is that the, the discipline of wildlife biology can be described with three words, and that is applied vertebrate ecology. Hmm. So by applied, what I mean is um, we're really interested in asking questions about how we conserve and manage wild animals out in the field. So um, that distinguishes us from a discipline like zoology, for example, which might have more of an um, academic interest in, like, the evolution of the species and mm -hmm. how their, their morphology, you know, why some bats have three fingers and some bats have four fingers, those sorts of things. Those are important um, evolutionary questions, but a little outside the realm of wildlife biology because we're focused on applied conservation and management questions. And then the second word in that three-word string is vertebrates. Um, so wildlife biology focuses on birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. Um, fisheries biology, which is sometimes combined with wildlife at some universities, but at Humboldt State we have a separate fisheries department. So our wildlife department is focused on those vertebrates, birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. And then um, the third word is ecology, um, which is just the study of how organisms, and in our case vertebrates, interact with their environment. So those three words, applied vertebrate ecology, really distinguish what HSU wildlife is about relative to other, you know, similar disciplines that might be at other universities. And to what extent, Dr. Johnson, did the uh, applied vertebrate ecology theme, I guess, or focus evolve kind of hooked to the fact of the campus's proximity to some pretty stunning and even singular habitats? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, one of the, you know, we have a strong reputation in the natural resource sciences, but we're um, also located in an absolutely 
gorgeous part of the world. We're in the Redwood Forest right on the coast. Yeah. Um, way up in northwest, the corner of northwestern California, Baja, Oregon, as I sometimes call it. <laughs> um, it's just a really a beautiful place with easy access to marshes and estuaries and sandy beaches and rocky beaches and, and conifer forests and mountains. And um, so, yeah, it's a spectacular place with great access to all of those sorts of places. And we use the outdoors um, as an outdoor lab. Yeah, you know, with our students, so we do a lot of field trips um, locally, and and in some cases on weekends and so on. Sure, yeah, I would think if you're uh, interested in uh, studying applied vertebrate ecology, it's like, hey, open your door, take five or ten steps out, and and there you are. Yep, that's right. That's great. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Matt Johnson, professor at Humboldt State University in the Department of Wildlife, who's overseeing an extended research study. Gauging the effectiveness of using owls versus rodenticides to remove rodents from nearby Napa Valley vineyards, gophers, mice, and other rodents are uh, uh, a long-time problem for these uh, vineyards, and this is uh, a way to try to mitigate those without um, the pesticides. If you'd like to ask uh, Dr. Johnson a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org. Or text 813-433-0885. So let's move into this, uh, this study. And I see this, this is what I like. The, the show is Talking Animals, and I, I believe we're hearing a talking animal right now. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. No, that's, uh, believe me, I, I'd rather cede the microphone to the dog. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so let's move into this, because it sounds like uh, as you were kind of uh, describing your, your, your research, the arc of that, that, that it was bringing you to... Uh, starting to address this this particular thing just because it was sort of more local than some of the international things in Kenya and stuff that you've done. So just uh, let's just talk about who initially conceived the study. How did it begin? Yeah, it really began with um, one of my first graduate students on this project. Her name is Carrie, uh, Carrie Wentz, and, um, and she noticed that there were these barn owl nest boxes, wooden boxes, put up on uh, vineyards in Napa Valley. And so she sort of brought the idea to me. Um, and she had worked with me in um, in Kenya on this project of uh, birds in coffee farms. And in that project, we were studying if insect-eating birds could help control insect pests on coffee farms. Mm. So it was a, a very natural leap to, you know, wonder why the farmers had put up these nest boxes for owls and thinking maybe they had done that for uh, possible pest control. And so as we began to speak with farmers, that's exactly what the intention was. So that just launched this whole, you know, effort to try to understand that system better. So that was about six years ago, and we're going strong ever since. Wow. So so I guess the first thing that comes to mind, because I maybe didn't realize necessarily the sequence, so when she noticed the barn owl boxes, so the vineyards themselves had erected those, or how did this yeah, even... That, yeah, that's exactly right. So... Um, yeah, we haven't, my own lab, my team, we haven't put up the boxes ourselves. The vineyard managers and vineyard owners have put up the boxes. Ah, this is actually okay. a practice that's been going on for um, a couple of decades um, in California and in other places even longer. So, um, you know, this is something that the farmers have already invested some time and money in, but ecologists and scientists hadn't really studied it very much to see if it was effective, how it could be more effective, it was, if it was beneficial to the owls or not. Um, those sorts of questions. So that's yeah. what we um, embarked on, starting with Carrie, and then I've had a series of graduate students since, and we keep asking the next question in a, in a series. 
So you guys have had no direct involvement in the number of boxes or the location that they're placed in. You guys have just said, okay, here they are. Now let's study what the impact is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we do have uh, a number of our, our collaborators, our vineyard managers um, that are now, um, you know, considering up considering putting new boxes up. And, of course, we'll offer some suggestions and recommendations about where they might be most effective. Um, but basically, we're studying the boxes that are already already have been put up by the vineyard managers. That's right. So for people who may not be particularly steep, what is a, an owl nest box? Yeah, so barn owls uh, naturally nest in um, cavities. So, um, you know, before humans were around, they're nesting in um, big cavities in trees or crevices in a rock face or something like that. Um, but over the, you know, last few thousand years, they've adapted to make use of um, holes and crevices and openings in human-created structures, hence the name barn owl. So, you know, they'll nest in old barns, they'll nest in steeples in Europe and things like that. Um, so they're, they're what we call a secondary cavity nester, meaning they need to nest in a cavity, but they can't make the cavity themselves, unlike a woodpecker that could drill their own cavity in a hmm. tree. So they're reliant on uh, holes out in the landscape or crevices. Um, and so uh, for that reason, they often don't have enough of them. Um, therefore, uh, we really have an opportunity to provide these nesting habitats uh, for, this, for this species. And a nest box, there's lots of different designs and materials, but a common design is just a, a, a plywood box. Um, with a you know about a four inch or so hole in it um, that provides the space for these birds to um, go inside, lay their eggs, and, and raise their young. So they must have just been like thrilled because uh, now you've explained what the secondary cavity uh, nester situation is. It's like, hey man, look at all these boxes here. We can yeah. we can move right in. Yeah, that's exactly right. So many secondary cavity nesters, and there are other species other than barn owls, like bluebirds are another common secondary cavity nester, meaning they can't drill their own cavities, but mm -hmm. they need a, a hole to nest in. Many of those species are limited by the availability of those nests. So, yeah, putting up nest boxes can be a great way um, to help increase the local population of those types of species, including barn owls. So when the vineyards put up these boxes, presumably they had some, some at least basic sense of what you've just described. But how did they decide kind of where to place them? I think there's three 300 some odd boxes at this point or up yeah. maybe. So were, were they doing it randomly? Were they doing it with some sort of specific pattern in mind or... Well, that, that's part of what our research is intending to inform. So there, you know, there's a little, there's a few pamphlets and things out there that have given some farmers some basic guidelines on where they might put those um, boxes. But we're trying to do a much more systematic study to understand um, what types of box designs are best, and then also what are the best placements where those boxes should go. Um, and you know, with a series of these graduate students, we're getting more and more uh, clear understanding of the barn owl's preferences in boxes, um, and we hope that that can inform um, the placement of future boxes. Yeah. So is there like a certain ballpark square footage or scope to where owls in this particular box, how far they might extend in terms of their hunting or whatever it is that they're doing amongst those vineyards? Yeah, well, that was one of our, one of our very first questions was to ask, um, you know, in addition to, um, understanding how to get a bird, maximize the probability of getting an owl in a box. But then the next question is, well, how much do they really hunt um, in the vineyard? 
Yeah. Um, so we put some GPS tags on birds to track where they were hunting, and that was work led by another graduate student uh, named Hieronimo Castaneda. And um, we found that the birds, uh, they range pretty widely away from the nest box. So they'll hunt in a radius of a mile or even a mile and a half from the nest box. But they spend the majority of their time near the nest box, maybe 500 yards or so. Um, and they will hunt in um, uncultivated or natural habitats like grasslands or a woodland or um, something like that, riparian habitats near a stream. But they'll also hunt in the, in the vineyards themselves, right down in the road. And so we found in, in this area, in the Napa Valley, that the birds were spending about a third of their time hunting inside the vineyard. So that was a pretty encouraging result because I thought there's a chance that, you know, these nest boxes seem great, but the birds are just commuting right over the vineyard to go hunt in the grassland nearby. Yeah. Um, But we confirmed that they are spending quite a bit of time hunting in the vineyards themselves. Yeah, I really did wonder about that and and wondered, uh, A, uh, how much the placement of the box would help dictate that, and B, the thing you just addressed now, which was what their typical range was so that could you kind of help ensure, based on where those boxes were, that more often than not they would be hunting in the vineyard as opposed to outside. Right. And it sounds like that that, that actually can be, to, you know, to the extent it's still a wild animal, but I mean, that, that can be sort of affected by the placement of the boxes. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, one thing we have found in terms of the, the owl's preference of boxes is that it does the, the mixture of habitats around the box does matter. Um, so they, the chance of getting an owl in a box is increased if that box has some natural habitat nearby, like grasslands and oak savanna and those mm. kinds of things in, in our neck of the woods. Um, so that, um, so there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a trade-off there. You know, uh, if you have a box with a whole bunch of grassland nearby and very little vineyard, you have a very high chance that that box becomes occupied, but the birds might spend a majority of their time hunting in those grasslands. Um, wow. If you, have a, if you have a box with nothing around it but vineyard, you do have a box, if you have an owl in that box, they're going to, of course, spend most of their time hunting in the vineyard, but the probability of having an owl in that box is a little bit lower. Yeah, and if there's some more natural habitat nearby. And how did you determine that the the sort of natural habitat element was fairly pivotal to the chance of them inhabiting those boxes? Yeah, well, two ways. One is, you know, with the GPS tracking, we could see that the birds were hunting in those habitats. But also, you know, now that we've monitored 250 to 300 boxes for six years, um, and the occupancy rate varies from 30 to a little over 50% each year, We've got a lot of information about which boxes are occupied and which boxes aren't. And so we can do some statistical analyses to see which uh, variables, which, you know, landscape, um, what, what, what um, composition of the landscape is associated with boxes um, that are occupied versus those that are not. And so far, based on um, determining those things, have some of the boxes already been relocated? Or you mentioned earlier that you're helping, I guess, consult with the vineyards about where to place new boxes. But have some of the existing boxes also been relocated in light of what you've found? Yeah, we haven't done that yet. That's a great next step that we're, we've had some conversations with some of the landowners about some boxes that you know have, have, have never been occupied in six years or barely been occupied in six years and saying, this is time to you know, change this box, um, modify it, put it in a new place. Yeah. Uh, what we might do to increase that probability of occupancy. Yeah. In these kind of conversations, are you working 
with a specific vineyard that that's the grounds where their box is, or is it more like a collective and you just guys are making sort of overall recommendations based on the research thus far? Well, we work with individual landowners and land managers. So, yeah, we're working with about 65 different vineyards. Some of wow. those vineyards are managed by the same um, vineyard manager or vineyard management company. So yeah. um, it's fewer individuals that we're interacting with that than 65. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's, and Napa Valley is, uh, you know, a big valley, a big um, valley of a variety of habitats and, and so on. So yeah, um, it's a pretty heterogeneous environment, um, and there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to, uh, to make this um, system even more effective than it might already be. And I would assume that they're appreciative because they're, what you guys are, have done already is said, hey, well, here's, as it turns out, a natural habitat nearby makes this more promising, and here's some other things we found. So I would think that they would be, A, appreciative and B, listening carefully to whatever your findings and, and, and maybe more specifically recommendations have, have been thus far. Yeah, the, the, our farmers and, and collaborators have been really receptive to the work, um, and so we're really appreciative of everything that they've offered us, access to the land um, and um, interest in our, in our findings. Um, I think, you know, this speaks to, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, wildlife biology, what it is. One of the things that's really exciting to me about this project is that we're not just asking some sort of esoteric, um, you know, question or some, you know, conservation question that might, the answer to which might just uh, stay on the academic shelves and nobody cares. Yeah. Uh, you know, that we're really trying to do some research that we think has practical application for the farmers. Um, and so that's a big part of our emphasis. For sure. So are the vineyards participating in any aspect of this beyond allowing access to their property? And then, of course, now listening to what your findings have been or recommendations have been. In other words, are, there, are they underwriting or sponsoring any part of the research? Yeah, some of the farmers have been generous um, and given us some money for, to uh, continue the research, although the bulk of the money has really come from grants that um, I and my graduate students have written. Yeah, um, to keep the the funding going, um, and those you know grantors are from um, mostly public a- agencies that are interested in applied agricultural research. Yeah, was there any uh, reluctance on your part or the, the graduate students' part of taking some monies from the vineyards as opposed to just having the grants, with the, which I'm sure you guys had already applied for and, and started to receive, or is it just like, hey, anything that helps us expand and further pursue this research is good money. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, we're certainly careful not to, we don't want to go down a slope of monetizing this research, right? Um, We're doing this uh, for the sake of um, improved knowledge about this relationship between barn owls and farmers. Yeah. Um, And we want to do that as uh, honestly and with as much um, integrity as possible. And so, yeah, we are careful um, about, you know, what sorts of endorsements or underwritings we might have. But, um, the, the, you know, relatively modest contributions we've had from farmers so far have been um, just to, you know, keep doing what you're doing, try to understand this system better and let us know how we might benefit the owls and benefit our, our pest control. So um, we feel like um, between the grants and those small donations that we're able to independently ask questions um, about the system and, um, you know, right. inform and, and advance the knowledge of this relationship. Right, and I'm sure there's probably at least some basic kind of uh, mechanism for disclosure about that, like there would be another kind of situation where you say, hey, right. part of our funding comes from uh, so-and-so vineyard, and uh, 
and you know we thank them but uh you know most of our funding comes from this grant this grant this grant or whatever so uh it seems like it would be addressed but um but probably still there's the, the larger source of funding is probably those grants i would guess yeah that's right. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Matt Johnson, a professor at Humboldt State University who's overseeing a study exploring the effectiveness of using owls as opposed to rodenticides to remove rodents from nearby Napa Valley vineyards. We invite you to join this conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So just so everyone's clear, Dr. Johnson, what are the awful things about rodenticides? Yeah, so rodenticides are, um, they can have some pretty strong uh, negative effects on the environment. There's a, a variety of different um, rodenticides. There's um, what are called first-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, and those were developed mostly before 1970. Um, and they can have really uh, uh, acute um, toxic effects on, of course, both the rodents they're intended to kill, but also other animals that might ingest um, those rodents. Um, and they can take a while for the rodents to die, especially with those first-generation anticoagulants. And so the, the, the uh, possibility of um, killing a coyote or a hawk or a cat or a, or a dog that might be ingesting those poisoned rodents is pretty high. And then the second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides came online um, mostly after 1970, um, and they can work after just a single um, feeding by the rodents, um, and they are uh, especially um, toxic, and so there's a, a long uh, list of studies that have documented the, the negative effects of these second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides on non-target Wildlife from foxes to mountain lions um, to your pet dog to mm. lots of raptors, hawks and, and owls and, and eagles and so on. So um, there's a lot of interest in getting away from these anticoagulant rodenticides. Um, in fact, in many places, the second generations have been um, outlawed for personal use. They're still used um, in some commercial applications. So there's a lot of interest amongst the um, public in general, but you know, farmers in particular in finding alternatives to these rodenticides. Yeah. And so, yeah, these nest boxes can certainly be part of a um, suite of management practices to better control rodents. And so when you say a suite of uh, practices, are some vineyards still using rodenticides but in, in smaller measure because they're presumably also using the, the owl boxes? Or what? Where, where are we with the rodenticides just generally there in, in the Napa Valley with the vineyards? Yeah, yeah, good question. There's some variation. So, again, you know, wide-scale application of second-generation anticoagulants is not really uh, permissible in California, but they can be used around um, certain structures, um, around, you know, barns or, or, or metal warehouse facilities and things like that. So there is some application of rodenticides and other rodenticides that aren't um, the second-generation anticoagulants. Those are still applied in some areas of Napa Valley and um, including some of the vineyards we have worked with. But many of the vineyards we are working with are shifting away from that, and actually quite a few are certified organic. Of course, in those cases, um, any of those rodenticides is not permissible. Yeah. Um, so when I say a suite of practices, I mean, in the agricultural world, they talk about integrated pest management, or IPM, as they often say. And really what that means is just using a, you know, a series of methods 
um, maybe growing your crop in a way that makes it a little less attractive or vulnerable to rodents, um, and maybe using some trapping methods um, to hand capture um, rodents to remove them, as well as um, you know something like um, the nest boxes to attract these rodent-eating raptors like barn owls. So I guess the question then would be, or one of them, is there just a certain limit that's reached by using just the owls, the nest boxes, so that, yeah, they're effective, but they're only X, Y, Z amount of effective, so we still need these other measures to really keep the, the rodents from getting into the crops? Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. And they, um, you know, the barn owls can be quite effective. We have done some studies to document how many rodents they'll kill. Um, And so we found that an average family of barn owls uh, in Napa Valley will kill about a thousand rodents during the breeding season alone and during the whole year, making some conservative estimates for how long the young survive and so on. Um, We estimate that uh, a single family of barn owls um, from a box um, can kill and remove about 3,400 rodents from the landscape per year. And some of these, you know, vineyards will have 20 occupied boxes. So it's yeah. a huge number of, of rodents that can be removed. But they're not a silver bullet. They're not going to, you know, putting up nest boxes isn't going to eliminate a rodent problem. Um, so that's why it's effective as part of an integrated pest management. I mean, if you think about it from an ecological perspective, predators are rarely able to completely eliminate their prey, right? That's not yeah. the way nature works because um, if they do, then they would run out of a food source and they would then move on to the next place or or maybe they switch prey items as the first prey item becomes very rare. Um, and, of course, the prey are in a tug-of-war evolutionary relationship with the predators as well, and so they have adaptations to evade predation. So because of that sort of um, natural push and pull, um, predators um, can be very effective at suppressing pest numbers and maybe keeping pest numbers from spiking like in an eruption. But in most cases, they're not um, able to completely eliminate a pest. Right. So I guess if someone out there is listening and saying, well, why doesn't the vineyard just keep putting up boxes? That kind of answers the question. It's, it's going to tap out at a certain point regardless. Right. Yeah. And so and rodent populations are also, you know, famously or maybe notoriously um, dynamic. Right. So some years it'll there'll be many, many voles. Um, and then other years there's not quite as many. And some years are worse or better for gophers. Um, and so uh, having these nest boxes with barn owls, which are a a very opportunistic uh, hunter. So if voles are very common, they'll eat voles. If gophers are very common, they'll eat gophers. And so they're they're able to, we think, dampen those, um, you know, huge swings um, in the numbers of different species of rodents in a place. Yeah. And wasn't there, I don't have this in front of me now, but wasn't there one kind of rodent that barn owls didn't tend to prey on as much as others just for whatever reason that was? Well, in our area, we find, and it does vary from even from box to box. Okay. Um, owing to, you know, the local availability of different um, rodents. But yeah. we do see that in, in the Napa Valley, um, the barn owls are eating mostly bulls and gophers. Okay. Those two species are making up about 75% of their diet. Okay. They'll eat mice and rats and, and young rabbits occasionally and insects occasionally. So they do have a, a varied diet. But bulls and gophers are the two main um, prey items in Napa Valley. But like I said, um, you know, they're a very opportunistic species. And um, they're also very widely distributed. So barn owls... That 
as a, as a general group, um, occur just about everywhere on the planet except Antarctica, and they'll feed on whatever the local rodent is, <laughs> whether it's a, yeah. a cotton rat or, um, you know, some other kind of uh, rodent. Or a, 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 There's barn owl boxes that have been put up in Israel and Malaysia and Florida, and they're eating, you know, different rodents in each of those places. Yeah. And do you, uh, just because this is the kind of show where sometimes you hear these sorts of things, uh, do you occasionally hear questions or, let's say, criticisms or whatever about using owls to mitigate the rodent problem in various vineyards? Like, oh, that's kind of harsh or cruel. But again, I would think that once people get the the specifics, if they haven't heard them previously about the rodenticide, that it's like, hey, uh, this is a much better fate if, if, if the rodents are going to go either way. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting question to sort of think about the, the ethics of it, right? Um, yeah. We are attracting a predator into a system um, to hunt and kill a rodent. Um, but um, like you say, I mean, one way to uh, put that into context is to think about, you know, what's the alternative? It's likely to be some sort of... Um, Physical trapping um, with a kill trap, a snap trap, or something like that, or yeah. or even worse, a, a poison. Yeah. Um, and I think the other way to also put that into context is that um, you know, with this kind of system, we're we're allowing a lot of autonomy for the animals, right? So um, we're putting up a nest box, but the barn owls are free to choose it or not. Sure. Um, and then when the barn owls come, they're hunting based on their, um, you know, long evolutionary history and, and what has um, resulted in preferences and hunting strategies, and, and they'll take what they take. And that's um, part of the, you know, respect of the individuality of those birds and, and what they might um, choose to consume. Now, if it happens to end up helping the farmer, from our perspective, that's a win-win situation. For sure, yeah. And again, it does seem like, back to the, the issue of, like, you know, are we setting up kind of a predator? Yeah, but again, versus the rodenticide, I mean, much, much less uh, harsh uh, fate and I guess sort of a just fundamental circle, circle of life kind of situation in some regards, even though it's slightly contrived with the boxes being placed there. But um, And on a related note, one of our emailers, uh, in terms of what the, the rodenticide might be like, says, uh, thank you for this topic today. I have a few rat poison bait stations around my house that are maintained by a pest control company. One time I noticed a possum that was going around in circles very slowly in front of my house, and I think it might have mm-hmm. been from the possum getting into the bait stations. It made me realize how bad that poison can be to critters. So yep. thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're in our final couple moments or so here, Dr. Johnson. But, I mean, you've already got a number of years in this. What are the sort of long-term projections or implications of this study, would you say? Well, we're trying to, um, you know, increasingly understand what farmers can do to, uh, you know, maximize the efficacy of this method. But we're also trying to turn that coin over and ask, you know, how can this be uh, as good as possible for the owl? Um, So we really want this to be a reciprocal relationship between the farmers and the owls. And so understanding how well the owls are reproducing um, in these places, um, in these nest boxes, and, and if there are certain nest box designs or certain placements of those nest boxes that can uh, be better for the owls as part of our research. Mm. And then, as we've touched on a little bit already, um, understanding, you know, that there still are some rodenticides um, in the landscape, um, working with collaborators. And I'm not doing a lot of this research myself. A lot of it's um, coming out of um, University of California at Davis, UC Davis. Okay. There are graduate students there trying to understand, um, are the rodenticides getting into the owls and what are the negative effects there? Um, And so far, um, we're not finding 
huge negative effect, um, especially in terms of like immediate um, mortality. But we're um, looking for the more subtle, sublethal, as we call them, effects. Um, so if their, you know, if their health is compromised or if they're um, uh, not able to feed their young as effectively if they have some exposure to rodenticides. So we want to understand all that stuff better just to make sure that we're con- keeping our eye on the prize of making um, this as as much of a win-win situation as possible. Yeah. So in some ways, it seems like your concern is the owls, at least as much as the the vineyards and the owners of the vineyards in some regards. Yeah. I mean, you know, to us, um, you know, wildlife biology and wildlife conservation is finding solutions that integrate the needs of people and wildlife. Um, and so, you know, those are the two sides of the same coin, the yin and the yang. We don't want to, um, you know, put one above and uh, uh, the other. Um, we really sort of imagine and, and view the world as um, a place where we as people interact with non-human wildlife in many ways, and we need to try to get back to doing that in a way that can be sustainable for both. Yeah. And when you mentioned the UC Davis thing, I was going to ask earlier and, and neglected to, uh, if there were other studies that were on a parallel path or echoing kind of some of the, the issues that you guys are exploring, and it sounds like UC Davis, I guess, is... Yeah, UC Davis. There are several graduate students at UC Davis working on raptors in agricultural settings, mm-hmm. um, including barn owls. And then um, I've got a whole team of um, students now asking the, the next um, wave of questions um, about barn owls and vineyards. Yeah. Well, speaking of the next wave of, of questions, is there projected endpoint to this current study or will it just be ongoing because other elements may be explored along the way? Well, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll keep this study going. We want to uh, do a long-term demographic study, so trying to understand the reproduction and even the survival of the owls and survival, studying how long and how well um, owls and other birds survive takes years and years. So we'll keep this work going, we hope, um, in Napa Valley for the coming years. But we also hope to expand to some other places. Of course, um, wine grapes are grown in lots of areas of California and even the world. Yeah. Um, so I think we've got great opportunity to um, expand the study to those other places. Um, and, you know, with the new students I have now, I have three students um, actively working on this project named Jamie, Lauda, and Sam. And they're each asking a slightly different question of the owls in Napa and, and how they might better understand that system. And uh, lastly, Dr. Johnson, to, are there other uh, studies? We talked about, obviously, the UC Davis one and yours, but are there other studies elsewhere? Wine is grown, uh, and they have presumably the same kind of issues at those vineyards? Um, there's not a lot of work on this uh, barn owl topic in wine grapes specifically, other than okay. what my lab is doing. But there, um, I did mention that barn owls are you know, widely distributed, and there have been studies of barn owls in nest boxes, in farms, in other parts of the world, especially in Israel um, and in Switzerland. There's a group of researchers in both those places um, that have been studying uh, barn owls in nest boxes or um, church steeples and other places where they're nesting and and their um, effect on the agricultural landscape. So, yeah, there is other work going on, and also in Malaysia, uh, where some farmers are putting up nest boxes to control 
um, a rat species there that is a problem in um, palm plantation. Interesting. Yeah, I just got an uh, email two seconds ago from a listener saying years back I was working in China. The bar- barn owls really helped keep the rat population in check there. So yeah, same kind definitely. of thing. All right. Well, Dr. Johnson, we've been speaking with Dr. Matt Johnson again from Humboldt State University, the Department of Wildlife. Uh, Dr. Johnson, really appreciate it. Really fascinating to hear all about this. And it uh, sounds like it's obviously going to be ongoing and, and maybe evolving for the coming years as well. But I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it all to, to me and our listeners here on Talking Animals. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Duncan. All right, take, take care. care. In a moment, I'll speak with Stacey LeBaron, the host of the Community Cats podcast. She's also the organizer of the fifth annual online cat conference happening this weekend, January 28th through 30th. People interested in various aspects of cats, especially feral cats or, or uh, community cats, may well be interested in the panels and other programming being offered at the online cat conference. More on that in a moment. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Matt Bronger doing a piece, fittingly enough, about owls. This is Matt Bronger with a piece I'm just calling Owls in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Anyway, Harry Potter. Um... <laughs> like, I like them. I like the books. I like the movies. But I think they send the wrong message to our kids. And that's that it's okay to own an owl for a pet. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm from Oregon, I know. Owls are made of claws, feathers, and hatred. That's it. (laughs) Like, owls don't give a crap. You ever look at an owl, the rage and hatred in his eyes? Up in a tree, like, who? Who? Who's next to die? It's you, mouse! And I'm back, hating everything that lives. But the kids want owls. Look, I know a lot of you guys are like, nuts to you, I'm getting an owl. Don't do it, okay? Because a friend of mine was driving once after a storm, and he found a baby owl that fell out of a tree, right? A baby owl. Can you imagine anything cuter than a baby owl? Like, don't hurt your brain. It's impossible, right? (laughs) Not even a kitten with an eye patch is cuter than a baby owl. And that's cute. Little pirate kitten, right? (laughs) So my friend, yar. So my friend... My friend gets, this, uh, gets it home, and he calls the Humane Society. He's like, hey, I found a baby owl. How do I raise it? And the guy's like, let it go, dummy. The Humane Society called him a dummy. Like, their name means the Be Nice Society. You know they weren't messing around, you know? But they told him this. They said, an owl that you raise in captivity will never stop trying to attack you. Like, and it knows it's you. It knows who you are. Imagine having this animal in your house growing strong off its hatred of you. Just sitting in a cage doing owl prison exercises, getting ready. Like waiting for that day he makes his Hannibal Lecter-like escape wearing another owl's face. Surprise! I'm not the good owl. Death! Like you come home, he's taunting you. You've had a hard day at work coming home and you see this. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, it's me, your owl. <laughs> Didn't get that promotion, huh? That sucks. <laughs> know what else sucks? I'm gonna kill you when I get out. Oh, you're gonna hide from me? You can never hide! My head goes all the way around! You're dead! All right, stay loose. Prepare for war. Stay loose. All right, that was Matt Bronger. In today's Comedy Corner, with a piece I call simply Owls, taken from his debut appearance on The David Letterman Show. Now it's time to speak with Stacey LeBaron, organizer of the fifth annual online cat conference taking place this weekend. This is Stacey LeBaron on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Stacey. Good morning. 
Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. So we did do a full-length interview a few years ago about the Community Cats podcast. Still, let's just start with a little quick overview of the podcast, its mission, and its focus. Sure, yeah. So I started back uh, in 2016 with the Community Cats podcast. Uh, we are a weekly podcast that gets released out on you know all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Back in 2016, fewer people knew really what a podcast was at that point in time. For sure. Uh, but we've now recorded about 450 shows. Wow. And, and yeah, we've had about 300,000 downloads. We've had an incredible lineup of different guests. Um, we talk to folks that are interested in turning their passion for cats into action. That is our key phrase, and that's what we're here to help people do. Well, that's great, and that's uh, a pretty uh, pretty prolific output in in that period of time. So that's great. So this also marks the fifth year of the online cat conference. What was the uh, impetus initially for, for launching the conference? Yes, we started the online cat conference five years ago just because there was just a little bit more that we wanted to provide folks that wanted to take that next step in learning how to create a rescue organization or a trap neuter return organization, an organization that will trap community cats, will get them spayed and neutered or fixed, and then uh, your tips put back out into the community. So there's just a lot of different resources, people that are concerned about feline leukemia, concerned about um, access to care, whether it's vaccines or spay-neuter, you know, how can people just get a few more tools in their toolkit to be able to help cats in their community? And so we wanted to have a dedicated conference just for cats, uh, you know, in the comedy uh, section that you just had, you talked about the main study in the United States. And there are a lot of conferences out there, but it always includes dogs, cats, little animals, farm sure. animals. And we wanted a conference that was dedicated 100% to cats. So we start on Friday night, um, and then we go all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and it's all about cats, and you can find out about it at the communitycatspodcast.com website. So how would you say the conference has evolved over those five years? Sounds like it started off with a pretty uh, specific uh, objective, and it's, I imagine maybe has changed or adjusted a little bit over those ensuing years. Well, we certainly have grown tremendously because of the pandemic. Uh, so a lot of programs have become more virtual. So folks are much more comfortable learning online. Yeah. And so this year's conference has more of a global theme to it. Yeah. A couple presenters talking about global cat management programs. We have a group uh, that's going to be logging in from Greece. Yeah. And sharing information about the work that they do. Um so we're sort of talking about programs locally, but also internationally, which has been fun because people are meeting each other from all around the world. And it's all the same. We all care about cats and we just want to make life better for them. So just so it's uh, totally clear, the, the conference is strictly online and Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And can you give us just a little sampling? I, I mean, I'd love to talk about all, all of the talks and things going on, but can you give us a little sampling? I mean, the, I was going to ask later about the, uh, the one from Greece, which you already touched on, but maybe just give us a little other sense of some things that people could expect who might be interested in, in, in joining up with the conference. Sure, sure. Um, and just to, to share, the, the conference is recorded. So you don't have to be in attendance the whole weekend. It's recorded, so you have about a year's time to watch the recordings at your leisure. We have over 30 presenters uh, joining us for the weekend. Some of the topics are how to start a TNR program, community cat experiences with your animal control. We have, you know, how to think uh, globally and act locally with the folks in Greece. 
We have a program, uh, Up Your Game, email fundraising, Breaking the Bias in CNR. So that is a moderated panel we're going to have with the folks from CARE. Um, and we have uh, grassroots organizations, uh, information about our Community Cats Grants panel. Wow. And, oh, how to socialize feral kittens. That's a popular one. So if you have... You know, how to, uh, if you rescue an older kitten, sometimes they're on the shire side. You might want, want to spend some time learning how to socialize them. Um, and then we have a uh, sort of a scientific presentation about uh, cat counts and how to really understand how many cats in your community need assistance. Um, oh, and cat pretty. So yeah, I was about, pretty. if you didn't bring it up, I was about to. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're doing a uh, analysis of different legislation all around the country about cats. But we're modeling it after the game of Jeopardy. That's um, great. And I also do cat trivia. So I have cat trivia throughout the whole, whole conference with prizes. And so we also have a lot of fun. Um, we have a Facebook group that we open up just for the weekend, sort of our lobbies. We, we make it fun. So even though it is virtual, we try and make it personal. That's great. And again, I love the idea that if people are sure as they're hearing these descriptions saying, oh, I'd love to do that, but I can't, I can't, I'm kind of got busy uh, plans this some of this weekend, but your thing about like you have a year to go back and, and check out some of the things that you couldn't watch it uh, as they were unfolding. I mean, I think that's fantastic. So, Stacy, give us one more um, time either the website or any social media pages where people could find out more and or register for the uh, the online cat conference. Yes, to to register, please go to communitycatspodcast.com, our website. The registration link is right there, and all the details about the speakers and how you can access everything is, is right there. Um, we are on social media. So we're on Facebook as well as Instagram and Twitter at Community Cats Podcast. Just uh, put us in the search bar. You'll find us um, at all those locations. And, um, yeah, we would love to have you join us and spend the weekend with us and just learn everything you can all about cats, how to help cats in your community. Um, and we'd love to have you tune into the Community Cats Podcast if, if you aren't into the conference just subscribe to our podcast and we'd really appreciate you uh turning your passion for cats into action that's great well the conference sounds fantastic and uh stacy thanks for taking a few minutes i'm sure you're busy getting everything kind of pulled together for the coming uh friday uh launch but uh, anyways it just sounds like it's a great program with all kinds of cool seminars and topics and, and games and all kinds of other things and again a year to, to catch up with certain things that you just didn't have the time to catch when they were broadcast live or aired live so that's great so stacy thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals and good luck with, uh, with the conference. Thank you. Coming up on WNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. A glorious three hours of music followed by Robin Hooper with yet another three hours of music and we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show, at the moment is the prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813 813- Two three nine nine six six three and correctly identifies this animal song. It's named that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask... All right, we'll take any of those guesses. I think we, we gave you a kind of an easy one today. So we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. 
archives of all our shows and so links to social media are all at, at talkinganimals.net. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa.